Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. you. Angus Courtney is my name, if I've not met you before. Uh, site pastor here at St. Oswald's, and we're going to be looking at that passage from Matthew chapter 3 this morning, so you can keep that open uh, if you have it there. It's only been three months, although it feels to me like a lot's happened since Queen Elizabeth died in early September. Does it feel like that to you? A lot's happened in those three months? Maybe it's um, because we had a third child in there, that's part of it. I wonder if you, like me, watched the moments of the pomp and ceremony following the Queen's death with fascination or and a sense that it belonged to another world. I found myself thinking that when... King Charles III was proclaimed king across Great Britain and then across 14 other realms around the globe, including here in Australia. The new king was proclaimed not only in Canberra, but in ceremonies in every state. I don't know if you remember, televised broadcast, surely you could have just done that, right? They could have beamed it out from Buckingham Palace all around the world and it would have been simpler and get it all done at once, but no. The ascension of the monarch meant old-fashioned ceremonies with people wearing fancy, funny clothes and someone reading aloud the official proclamation and thousands of people gathered round. There are just some moments that demand to be heralded. We're spending four weeks, throughout the four weeks leading up to Christmas, the season known as Advent, looking at the life and ministry of John the Baptist, a figure we don't often associate with Jesus' birth, except for the fact that Jesus and John's mothers were related and both their pregnancies were announced by angels and both the sons born to these two women were to play important, even though unequal, roles in God's plan. But we're looking at John the Baptist because we think that he has something to say to us in this season. Last week, we looked at Zechariah, John's father, who encountered the angel Gabriel in the temple while he was performing his once-in-a-lifetime moment of service, the glory of lighting the incense. Zechariah had been waiting, said last week, but when God showed up, he wasn't ready. And that's why we need Advent. It's why we need John the Baptist, because John the Baptist was God's gift to a people who were waiting but not ready. And that's why we've called our series, Let Every Heart Prepare. Let Every Heart Prepare. The line from the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, we'll sing it after our sermon. John the Baptist was a herald, the one who proclaimed the arrival of the Messiah. And this week, we look at his message, probably the most heavy-hitting, the most challenging and confronting of the weeks that we have. Because unlike the proclamation of Charles III, which doesn't really change very much for most of us, 
except that we'll start to see a new head on our currency in time. The announcement of the coming of Jesus has to change everything. And John wants us to be prepared. Don't know if you know this, but in all four of the gospel accounts that are in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the public ministry of Jesus is introduced by the ministry of John. He makes it into all four of them. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Why don't they just skip forward, ignoring John and going straight to Jesus? Have you ever heard a gospel presentation that includes John the Baptist? I don't think I've ever heard one where he's in it. We tend to forget him, but all four of the evangelists include him as a precursor, a setup for the ministry of Jesus. Why do they do that? Well, it's because they know that John's ministry was an essential forerunner to Jesus. His message is essential so that we might rightly receive Jesus. And in each of the four Gospels, the way that John is introduced is with an image that comes out of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John's the voice crying out in the wilderness. Jesus is the one to make ready for. That image in Isaiah actually has a little bit more detail in it than Matthew includes. We read it before, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. What's going on in this image that all four of the Gospels use to mark the ministry of John? Well, in the ancient world, especially the world of Isaiah's day, most roads weren't paved. And that was even more the case in the wilderness. You just had dirt roads, and they were bumpy and uneven, and they went up and down over the undulating landscape. The only places where you had paved roads was in the cities, and particularly you had paved roads in the city that the king lived in. Because the emperor, the king, the monarch was not to be traveling over dirt roads, but to be traveling over smooth, paved, level roads. In fact, the time of the Assyrian and Persian empires, which is around about the time of the prophet Isaiah, the Assyrian empire, if a king were to be coming through a certain part of the empire, road builders would be sent ahead of the king to wherever the king was traveling to make the roads level, to carve out the bumps and to flatten it out, to um, make the roads a place that was fit for the royal presence. And so what Isaiah is prophesying is that the one who is coming is a king. 
And if a king is coming, then you've got to get ready. That's what that image is all about. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall be made low. Start singing Handel's Messiah in my head. And John, this voice in the desert, says, if you want to receive Jesus, if you want to welcome him in, then you have to receive him as king. No, no other way will do. You have to receive him as king. And so how do you receive him as king? Three things we're going to look at this morning. You need to rely. You have to obey. And you have to relax. Rely. Obey, relax. Work through them. If you want to receive Jesus as king, you have to rely. You're not treating him as king unless you rely. The word that's used here in this passage is the word repent. John appears in the wilderness in Judea, Matthew chapter 3, and he's proclaiming a message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There's something to do. Repent. And there's a reason for it. Because the kingdom of heaven, the reign and rule and presence of God has come near. It's come near in the incarnation. The Lord God himself was coming just as Isaiah had promised, but the Lord God was coming in human flesh. And if he's coming as the king, then repentance is necessary. Repentance means a change, you might know that, but not just at the level of your thinking and not even just at the level of your behavior. No, it, it's a change that goes all the way down to the level of your heart. Take a look at verse 7. But when he saw many Pharisees, this is John, he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him for baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Old mate John's not making any friends here. He's taken some Jewish leaders. They're allegedly coming out for baptism. It's not like they're coming out to throw rocks at him or to tease him for his camel vest. But John says, you brood of vipers. Frederick Beekner. American Presbyterian minister died earlier this year. Uh, amazing writer, just beautiful expression. He wrote of the prophets and he described them this way. He said, prophet means spokesman, not fortune teller. The one in whom their unfathomable audacity the prophets claimed to speak for was the Lord and creator of the universe. There is no evidence, he says, to suggest that anyone ever asked a prophet home for supper more than once. The prophets were drunk on God. And in the presence of their terrible tipsiness, no one was ever comfortable. With a total lack of tact, they roared out against phoniness and corruption wherever they found them. And here's John. And he's standing in the great line of the prophets. You know that because of what he's wearing clothing made of camel's hair and wearing a leather belt. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 describes the prophet Isaiah that way. When one of the kings asks who the prophet is who's been causing trouble, they say, it was a hairy man wearing a leather belt. 
And the king says, oh, it's Elijah the Tishbite. And he's John dressed the same way. And he tells them, bear fruit worthy of repentance. And we read that and we think, okay, well, we've got to change our behavior. We've got to produce love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. And that's true uh, that there will always be results of repentance. Repentance will always lead to something, which means if you're not bearing any fruit, if there's no change in your life, even if that change is slow and incremental, sometimes change takes a long time. But if there's no change or no growth or no bearing fruit in your life, then it is worth asking yourself whether you've repented. And at the same time, it's really important to see that repentance is not the same thing as fruit. Change behavior is the outcome of repentance, not repentance itself. That's why John talks about it as the fruit worthy or in keeping with repentance. And he gives us a clue as to what repentance means when he says in verse 10, even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Why does he say that the axe is lying at the root of the tree? We took a couple of stumps and small shrubs out yesterday at our working bee and we weren't aiming for the roots, we were just aiming for the trunk. You cut a tree down by the trunk, don't you? Not by the roots of the tree. And so what's, what's uh, John talking about when he says that the axe is lying at the root of the trees? Well, what he's saying is that repentance has to get to the root. That's where the problem lies. If a tree is not bearing good fruit, it's because it doesn't have a good root. And the root in our lives is what we trust. It's what we rely on. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they relied on their heritage. They could say, we have Abraham as our ancestor. It gave them security, a sense of entitlement to demand something of God, a ticket they could punch and to presume upon the blessing and mercy of God, and yet they weren't producing any fruit. And if you want to receive Jesus as king, you've got to rely on him. You've got to change your root. That's what repentance is. It's saying, when I sin, it's because I failed to trust Jesus fully. I don't trust that what he gives is enough for me. I don't trust that what he says is good for me. I don't trust that where he leads will be satisfying for me. I don't Trust that he is with me. And that's true whether you've never turned to Christ or whether you've been a Christian for a long time and you find yourself confronted by sin in a particular area of your life again. It's one of the reasons that we confess our sins regularly, including when we gather as a community at church, not just at the beginning of the Christian life. Repentance is changing your root. And John says that God is coming 
and he's targeting that root. That's where the problem is. That's what needs to be corrected. And if it will refuse to be corrected, then it needs to be cut down. See, secondly, John says, if you want to receive Jesus as king, you have to obey. Repentance results in obedience. It produces good fruit. And repentance and obedience is necessary because the one who's coming is the Lord. If John the Baptist is the voice, then Jesus is God, prepare the way of the Lord, the voice says. Make his paths straight. What what does it look like to make the paths of the Lord straight? Well, it looks like obedience. See, if God shows up, and when God shows up, he doesn't adapt to your roads. Your roads need to adapt to him. He doesn't adapt to your zigzags. Your zigzags need to adapt to him. That's what it means for him to be king. And if you're not obeying him, then you're not treating him as king. You might say he's God, but you're not letting him be God in your life. And if he's God, then he doesn't exist to serve you. You exist to serve him. We tend to think at Christmas that Jesus is God's gift to us, and he is, that's true. The truly remarkable thing about the Christian story is that the God who holds the earth and the heavens in his hands enters it as a servant. But we can sometimes neglect the reality that the one born in a manger in Bethlehem is also a king. That's why the Magi travel days to find him, and when they see him, they give him gifts and worship him on bended knee. There's an old story of two drunk men who were heading home after a night out. And uh, it's an old story. They came uh, down to the dock because their homes were across the river, and they got into their boat to row their boat back home. They wanted to get home. They began to row. They rowed for hours, pulling hard away at it all night and wondering why they had not made it to the other side. When the dawn broke, it became clear they hadn't loosed the mooring ropes and they hadn't raised the anchor. I don't know who needs to hear it this morning, but that can be true for us too, can't it? We want to reach the kingdom of God. We want to become more like Jesus. And we can't work out why we don't seem to be making any progress, but we're attached to the world. And the only way is to cut the cord. If you want to receive Jesus as king, you've got to obey. And here's the promise. Because it's good news as well. Empowered not just by his coming at the incarnation, but by Jesus coming again in glory, what we remember during Advent. As we rely on him and as we obey him, we seek to obey him, we will change. Fleming Rutledge, a, uh, an Episcopal priest in the US who's published a book of sermons on Advent, she puts it this way. She says, we're not just looking backward sentimentally to a baby, We're also looking forward to the only one in whom the promise of peace will someday be fulfilled. 
trusting in that promise. We can do things that we thought we could not do, relying on Him. Note that, given we were talking about relying, relying on Him. We can change our habits, confront our addictions, forgive our enemies, curb our spending, challenge our society, raise our pledge, lower our defenses, stand up for justice, speak for truth. Not all of those things at once, to be sure. But even one break from past patterns of sin will be in its way a sign of Christ's coming. Every time we make a step towards obedience to Jesus, every time we say, I want you to be Lord of my life, It's a small but nonetheless significant sign, an indicator, a post in the ground that Christ has come and he will come again and we hope in that. And so let me ask you this morning, are there any wilderness areas in your life or in your heart to which the voice of God cries out today? Prepare the way of the Lord. If Advent is a season of getting ready, of being prepared, what what will that look like in your heart? We looked at two things necessary for receiving Christ as King, relying and obeying, and they're both things that, in a sense, bring you down. Maybe you're feeling the weight of them like the mountains and hills of Isaiah's prophecy being made low. The third thing lifts us up, like the valleys being exalted. If you want to receive Jesus King, you have to relax. And this turns out to be the most important of all the things. See, one of the historical anomalies of John the Baptist is the way that he said by his ministry, everyone needs to get into this water and get baptized. Verse 5, then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I don't know if you have ever thought about this, but where did the practice of baptism originate? And, And when Jesus tells disciples that they'd have baptized people as they come to faith in him. This hadn't been something that the Jews had always done in their history. There were some communities, including the sectarian community at Qumran, who practiced baptism, but what they did was they baptized themselves rather than being baptized by another, and they actually did it daily as like a daily purification moment. And what the Jews did was that they baptized Gentiles, people who wanted to convert into Judaism and start following the Lord God as a moment of their initiation into the people of God. But Jewish people weren't baptized. It wasn't until John came along that he said, all of you into the water. This was not just for Gentiles, it was for everybody. This needs to be universal. But then he says in verse 11, and I find this so interesting, he says, 
Oh, and by the way, this baptism doesn't really do anything. Do you notice that? He says, my baptism with water is for repentance, a sign of repentance. But what you need more than this is the baptism of someone else. What you need is the baptism of someone greater. My baptism is worth nothing compared to what the one coming can do. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that's good news. Because what we need more than a water sign of our repentance is purification from sin. That's what the fire is all about. Fire is an image of purification. And what we need is the regeneration in our hearts that can only be a work of God by His Holy Spirit. That's why we need a baptism by the Holy Spirit and by fire. You can't earn your salvation. You can only receive it. It has to come as a gift. And the promise of John is that the King to come, the Lord Jesus, will do this. He will give this gift freely and liberally to those who want to receive it. See, if you try and save yourself through your obedience to him, you're not really obeying him. You'll become self-righteous like the Jewish leaders or you'll despair your failures. And if you say, I can save myself by relying on him, you're not really relying on him, you're relying on your relying of him. The only thing you can do is to relax. To rest from your own righteousness. Repentance is necessary, yes, but it's only made effective because God's grace has come and it's already at work in your life, renewing you into the image of Christ. And the salvation that King Jesus brings is one that takes you off the treadmill of performance and allows you to rest in performance-free love. Do you need that? Do you want that? And if you know it already and you've experienced it, isn't it the best thing in the entire world? If you want to receive Jesus as king, you have to relax and let him renew you and change you and grow you as you seek to follow him, yes. But knowing that it's he who can give it. It's he who can do it. And here's the thing. To the degree that we do these three things, we rely, we obey, and we ultimately relax, that's the degree to which you'll have the great power of the king at work in your life. Because this king comes not simply to judge, but to gather his own to himself. The promise in Isaiah's day was a promise of comfort. I love that Alison used the image and the language of comfort in her prayers before. And that passage ends with this image of the Lord God coming and feeding his flock like a shepherd, gathering the lambs in his arms, carrying them in his bosom, near to him and dear to him. God's coming would be the end of Israel's long period of waiting in exile. And the message of 
Advent is that the Lord has come. The Lord will come again. And that's a message of great comfort and hope. Hope in the face of adversity. Hope in the face of death, which some in our community are feeling acutely this week. Hope in the face of sin. Hope in the face of disappointment. Prepare the way of the Lord, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word from the prophet John, heralding the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus. Please, we pray, help us to be the kind of people who live out of a readiness, who live out of the freedom that comes from knowing that Jesus comes as our Savior, and he also comes as our King and Lord. We pray that we might have a joyful obedience, a joyful desire to rest and to serve him and to rely on him in everything in our lives. And that, that might fill us up and sustain us as we go about serving him in every context of our lives. We pray it for his glory. Amen.